Let me invite you to open your Bibles, please, to the book of Ephesians, chapter 3. Let's pray together. Father, it is a privilege to be here. It's a privilege to sing praise to your name, to unite together with one mouth, one voice, one heart, singing praise to you who is worthy of praise. You are God of heaven. You are God of earth. You're God of everything. Thank you for the Lord Jesus, for your spirit, and for your word. Help us this morning that we would allow your spirit to do his work in us, that we would yield ourselves to you. We pray, Father, that our worship in the word would be sweet and encouraging, that you would move within us by your grace, in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever felt insignificant? Maybe you were part of a work team that had a, a role to play, and your role felt like it didn't really contribute quite as much as you had anticipated. Or maybe you were part of a play, and the, the part that you played didn't really carry the storyline along too, too far. Or maybe you were part of a sports team, and you had a role that was less than stellar in your opinion. You thought, maybe I should have a better role than that, and you feel insignificant I remember in the year 20, uh, 2004, the Boston Red Sox made a huge trade at the trading deadline. They sent one of their cornerstone players, Nomar Garciaparra, to the Chicago Cubs and got some players back in return. It was a major, major deal. On the same day, they made another deal to acquire a reserve outfielder who would serve as a, you know, a fourth outfielder and a defensive replacement. His name is Dave Roberts. If you are a baseball fan, particularly a Boston Red Sox fan, you know exactly what I mean now by Dave Roberts because if you remember that year in the league championship series, the Red Sox were down three games to zero, and in the fourth game they were losing, and uh, Mariana Rivera came to the mound it's not good news when Mariano Rivera comes to the mound against your team. It just means the game is over generally. Well, the, the Red Sox got a hit off of him. I believe it was Bill Miller. I don't remember exactly. One of the guys got a hit. And Dave Roberts came in to pinch run. Insignificant Dave Roberts. An insignificant deal on the trading deadline day of 20, uh, 2004. And you'll remember that Dave Roberts stole second base and the rest, as they say, is history. The Red Sox went on to win four straight in that series and then four straight in the World Series to win eight straight total to become the world champions. 86 years of heartbreak and agony for Red Sox fans were abolished that day. Everyone forgot about Mr. Buckner that day. Dave Roberts, insignificant. While much of the world wants to marginalize the church, that means to make it insignificant. The church plays a significant role in God's plan for the ages. And in the passage we have before us this morning, in Ephesians chapter 3, God is going to tell us how important his church is. God is going to tell us how important his church is. He's going to tell us, in fact, that the church has eternal significance. Take a look, please, in Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to, uh, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus 
throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Now, if you were to read this prayer, and you were to analyze this prayer from a journalist's perspective, you would say that Paul buried the lead. You know what it means to bury the lead? You start with these very important parts of information, but you left the most important part for somewhere down in the story. And sometimes, if you do that, people don't actually get the point of the story you're writing. Uh, Paul kind of buried the lead here. The Spirit of God kind of buried the lead here. And what I mean by that is, to find out the importance of this passage, you go to the end, and we're not going to bury the lead in our consideration. In verse 20, God's ability is in view. But before verse 20 is done, God tells us that his power is at work within us. So verse 20 says, Now to him who is able, the one who has power, the one who has ability, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. So God's power is in view. God's ability is in view. And then he tells us that that power that is his is at work within us, the church, God's people. Verse 21, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. In verse 21, Paul's prayer is that God would be glorified now throughout all generations. That includes this one, the first century then, and this century now, throughout all generations, and forever, and forever, and forever. Paul's prayer in verse 21 is that God would be glorified at all times through two avenues. Two avenues. It's, very, it's plain as day in the verse. You can see it for yourself. They're in parallel construction. It says in verse 21, to him be glory, to God be glory. How? In what ways? Through what avenue? In the church and in Christ Jesus. Both. Not one, but two. What we'll notice is as we look at the rest of the passage, is how these two avenues, the church and Christ Jesus, are connected throughout the passage. God will be glorified through both avenues, the church and Christ, and throughout this passage, 14 through 21, Paul ties these two avenues together. The reason, folks, the reason that the church can have such an eternal significance is that Jesus Christ himself is residing in the church. That's the reason that the church can have such an eternal significance. We have an eternal significance. You may feel as though the world wants to marginalize us. You may personally feel as though you don't have a tremendous amount of significance. But God is telling us that the church has eternal significance. It's important to note that while it is true um, that Jesus Christ dwells in individual believers, that's a... That's a truth throughout the New Testament revealed. This passage is not talking about Jesus residing within individuals. This passage is talking about Jesus' residence among his people as a church. There is a distinct difference, and we'll talk about that at least briefly throughout this. So what we want to learn about from that reality is that this scripture text is fulfilled in the context of the church functioning together. It's not fulfilled as individuals doing their own thing in isolation from the church. This section of Ephesians is written in the context of prayer. We'll notice that. Uh, it's very, um, very straightforward. And it makes perfect sense that it's written in the form of prayer. He says in, in verse 14, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. For what reason, is the question you might ask. For what reason? Well, he's answered that question in the preceding verses. In fact, in verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 3, Paul started to say, for this reason. Now, if he were writing an email, he probably would have hit the delete button. 
and he would have just restarted the sentence. But he was writing on, on a, a parchment, so he just kept going. He interrupted his own thought right in the middle. He says, for this reason, in verse 1, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, and then he goes on, and he, he's like, okay, for, 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 for this reason what? And then in verse 14 he says, for this reason, and he completes the sentence, I bow my knees before the Father. And what we'll notice in these first 13 verses, and we're not going to cover it, we looked at it Wednesday night, in these first 13 verses he gives us a reason why he bows his knees. The reason he bows his knees, and it makes perfect sense, is that he was realizing the enormity of the task the enormity of the task. He says in verse 2, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. The stewardship means uh, a responsibility. Assuming that you understand how burdensome this task is of dispensing God's grace to every person that you come in contact with. Assuming that you understand what, how, how large of a task it is that Jew and Gentile, that slave and free, that, that barbarian Scythian, that men and women, boys and girls, that everyone here of this stewardship of God's grace. He tells the reason that he bows his knees is this task is just far beyond him. It also makes perfect sense that he bows his knee before the Father because he was realizing the encompassing recipients of the ministry. In verse 6, he tells us what the mystery is. He says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. What he's saying is, this gospel of grace, that is my stewardship, is for every human being, whether they're Jewish or Gentile. That means everybody, because you're either Jewish or Gentile. There's no other category, Jewish or Gentile. He says, this is for everybody. So the, the, the task incorporates everyone. He also bows his knees, and it makes perfect sense, because he was realizing the beauty and power of the message. Look at verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles, listen carefully, the unsearchable riches of Christ. He's, in that one statement, he tells us, listen, every week, Every day, I meet people, and I tell them about Jesus, and I tell them about the gospel. And I want to tell you, I can only just scratch the surface. The reality of the gospel and of Christ is so far beyond our ability to comprehend and articulate. It is unfathomable. It's unsearchable, the riches that are found in Christ. So he articulates it. So because of the enormity of the task and the, the encompassing uh, recipients of the task, and because of the, the beauty and power of the message that is the task, he bows his knees before the Father. And going a little further, he realizes that the source of his effectiveness in the ministry is not within himself. Verse 7, please. It says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. You know what he's telling you? He's not sufficient for the task at hand. You see, when we think we're sufficient for the task, why would we bow our knees to the Father? If we've got this, all, this whole Christianity thing all worked out and the message all worked out, why would we bow our knees to the Father? I know what to say. I know how to say it. I know how to live it. I know how to do it. I'm good to go. But Paul realizes he is insufficient for such a task as this. He needs God's grace, God's divine enablement. So he bows his knees. Additionally, he realizes that there is an otherworldly impact that this ministry among the church that it has. So he's realizing the otherworldly impact of the ministry of the church. Look at verse 10. So that through the church, through what? Is he talking about individuals here? No. He's talking about us and other manifestations of the church. Not just this church, but he's talking about the Ephesian church, right? And the Colossian church, and the Philippian church, and the Laodicean church. He's talking about the church at Thessalonica. He's talking about the church at Thyatira, and Pergamos, and Sardis. All the churches that were around then, just like all the churches that are around now. So he says, verse, verse 10, so that through the church... 
the manifold wisdom of God might now, in this present age, be known to the rulers and authorities where? In the heavenly places. He's talking about the fact that as the church operates in accordance with the gospel, as the church fulfills the, the stewardship of God's grace, as the church is influenced by Jesus to accomplish the task, it's not just a here and now thing that people can feel this has ramifications beyond the earth into the heavenly places. This is incredible. And so he says, I bow my knees to the Father. This is beyond me. Like it's beyond you. Like it's beyond us. It's beyond us. Listen, when you and I are surrendered to Christ and he is operating in us, we're going to see some beautiful things from this passage. But one of the passages that, that really encourages us is that we make an impact not only in this age, not only in this space, but into the heavens itself. You can tell right then and there that this is not of me. It's not of you to accomplish that. You can't touch the heavens. You can't jump to the heavens. You can't Fly to the heavens. Not the ones we're talking about here. We're talking about the heavenly, heavenly places that are beyond the place where the birds, that's the first heaven. We're talking about beyond the heavenly places where the, the stars and the sun and the moon and the planets are. That's the second heavens. We're talking about beyond this. We're talking about the heavens that you couldn't touch in a rocket ship. This is beyond us. And yet... And yet, God has made the church so significant that it is through the, the avenue of the church that God displays the multifaceted components of his wisdom to heavenly beings elsewhere. That's amazing. Feel significant or insignificant? Well, Paul felt significant that the church was significant, and so because of the enormity of the task, because of the encompassing recipients, because of the beauty and power of the message, because of the effectiveness was outside of himself but from God, because it has otherworldly impact, he bows his knees to the Father, and then he's also realizing the blessing of boldness and access with confidence. Look at verse 12. He says, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. About what? Well, verse 11, about his eternal purposes. That, that uh, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we have this, this, this passage of Scripture that really is, is beyond the, the best of our understanding. We, we can understand what God has revealed, but it, it, it really takes on much more deep significance someday when we're in, in the presence of Jesus and he's really teaching us what all of the ramifications of everything that's going on in there is. But, but what we can see is this. The church has an amazing, amazing place in God's plan for the ages. It is not in any way insignificant. It is a, it's an entity that demonstrates God's glory, that brings glory to God. It's an entity that demonstrates God's wisdom, not only here, because they probably think more of the foolishness aspects, but wisdom to the heavenly beings, whether they be good angels or fallen angels. Paul bows his knees in praise, and he bows his knees in supplication that God would bring about his purposes in the life of the Ephesian church, and by implication, here. In praise, he says, I bow my knees to the Father, to the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, the significance of this is that God is the source of every family. And the significance is, he's already told us in chapter 2, that the dividing wall that once divided Jews and Gentiles, that kept them separate, that kept the, the Gentiles and the women on the outside of the prayer place. They've got these different courts in and amongst the Temple Mount. God pulled down that wall and says, everyone can come. Not only can you come into the temple courtyard, you can go into the temple itself. Ha! Even better, into the very Holy of Holies you can go. All of that's wiped out. You've been brought near by the blood 
of Christ. We can walk by confidence. We can do this. And, and so Paul says, every family on earth has been named by this father. He's praising him. And then he starts to, to pray. And he's not just, you know, uttering some idle words. He is supplicating. He's in an earnest entreaty for the church here in these verses. And his, his supplication, his prayer, his prayer is dependent upon the character of God. He doesn't say, God, look at me in the earnestness of my prayer. Look at me, I've been walking holily with you and holily with you. I've been walking in a sanctified manner. You must answer my prayer. He doesn't say anything like this. Here's what he says in verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory. According to the riches of his glory. Paul is praying and he's calling upon the character of God because God's glory is a manifestation of all that he is in his character and nature. God's glories are his attributes. His attributes are that he is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is everywhere present. He is holy and just and righteous and good and kind and gracious and merciful and long-suffering. And you can go on and on and on. These are God's glories. He says, in accordance with the abundance of your glory, I bring this prayer. Answer this out of the abundance of your glorious nature. Listen, that should shape our prayers. Not our glorious nature. We are far less than glorious. God is all glorious in every way. And so he should be the basis of all of our prayer. And this is how Paul, Paul frames it. First of all, he says, God, you're the one that every one has being from. You're the father of every family. And beyond that, I'm asking you out of your own character and nature that you might answer this prayer. What does he want God to do is the question. What does he want God to do? The way that I want to phrase this in our, our kind of navigating through it is we need. Because where he is asking for something, it's because we need it, right? So we're just going to put all these points out as we need. We need, we need. It's true. Just remember that you don't supply what we need. He does. So first of all, we need divine power in our inner man. We need divine power in our inner man. Verse 16 again. That according to the riches of his glory, he might grant, that's a gift of grace, he might grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner man. That is a great prayer. God let us as a church, not just individuals, though that's a great prayer as well, but this is not about the individuals, this is about the church, that, that we would be strengthened by your power, that you would graciously grant to us your power through your spirit in our collective inner man, in, in our being, in our corporate gathering, that the power of Christ might be manifest. Do you believe that God can do that? How does he do it? He does it in the proclamation of the word, doesn't he? He does it as we, as we humbly beseech him in prayer. He does it as we're praising him with our lips. He does it as we're, we're uh, exhorting and encouraging one another in and amongst our gathering. God, is, his power can be seen. His power can be felt. We recognize that it is not of our own accord that we bring forth anything spiritual. Take a look with me. This is such an important concept. Take a look at Romans chapter 7. His prayer is that God's spirit would dwell within us, strengthening us to enable us for such a task as he's already described. What is that task? That we would be stewards, stewards of the, the gospel of God's grace. That every time we're together, we'd be sharpening our understanding of that gospel of grace. That we would be feeding upon that gospel of grace. That we recognize our insufficiency, his all-sufficiency. That in and of our own selves, we will not bring forth God's pleasure, but in and through Jesus, we will, in fact, bring forth God's pleasure because Jesus is perfectly pleasing to God in every way at every time. And when we are strengthened by God's Spirit in our inner man, guess what's happening? Jesus is displayed. And we'll talk more about that in a couple of moments here. 
in Romans 7, this great passage of scripture where Paul is, he's wrestling. He's wrestling. I think he's wrestling is more, he's taking a struggle that he has had in his own inner man and he is, he is describing it here for us. How as a, a spiritual man, as a religious man, he wants to do what's right. But as a carnal man, as a secular man, as a person of flesh, he wages war against that which is right. Listen to what he says beginning in verse 14. He says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. He's not talking about his pre his pre salvation condition. He's talking about his present condition. I am of the flesh. I am sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want. I want to do the right thing and I do the wrong thing. But I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Verse 18, we should all have this one underlined. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. He's not saying that Jesus doesn't dwell in him and that's not good. He's not saying that the Spirit doesn't dwell in him and that's not good. He doesn't say that the Father doesn't dwell in him and that's not good. He says that nothing in my flesh dwells within me that is any good. I've got nothing to offer, which is why we need to be strengthened with his might, by his spirit, in our inner man. This is a, a theme of scripture, particularly clarified in our New Testaments. This is why we are to be encouraged to be strengthening our inner man day by day. Take a look at a couple of passages. Romans chapter 12, please. Romans chapter 12. We are to be encouraged and encouraging ourselves to be strengthening our inner man day by day. In Romans 12, we have a very familiar passage in verse 1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewal of your mind. What does he mean? He's talking about refreshing ourselves constantly in the gospel of God's grace in the word of God, that, that I don't have, I don't have anything good to offer. Jesus has done this. His offering is sufficient. It's good enough. And he can, in fact, live in and through me. Now, he dwells in me, but living in me is, is a little bit of a different context. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes in Ephesians. He makes a distinction between Jesus' presence in our lives and Jesus' activity in our lives. Renew your mind. Renew your mind every day. Take a look a little further at Colossians chapter 1. While you're turning to Colossians 1, I want to remind you of a, of a beautiful passage of Scripture that encourages us in the midst of everything we face on a daily basis. Paul encourages the Corinthians, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is what? Being renewed. How often? Day by day. Day. And, and you know what? He doesn't mean, okay, well, it's, it's Monday, so I'm going to renew my mind. And, okay, it's Tuesday, I'm going to renew my mind. Okay, it's Wednesday, I'm going to renew my mind. No, no. You could read it a little differently, and I'm not trying to change the Holy, the Holy Scriptures here. What I'm saying is you could just read it differently to understand the concept he's trying to convey moment by moment. If you only go from day to day and like in the morning, okay, I'm going to renew my mind this morning, by about 9-11, not, not, not the date, like 9 a.m., 11 minutes, maybe even 8, 11, or maybe even 7.30, you already messed it over. So it's being renewed moment by moment. It's this constant recognition that my efforts are not enough. His are good. His are right. His are enough. And I yield myself. I must yield myself to him. We're renewed moment by moment. Here in Colossians 1, Paul is praying again. This time he's praying for the Colossian church and he's really bringing the same kind of point home to us. He's 
teaching us something. He's teaching us that, that we don't have what it takes within ourselves. Listen to how he, he phrases it, beginning in verse 9. And so, from the days we, uh, we heard, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will. There's, there's some re renewing of our minds, right? We're, we're looking into the word and we're seeing his will. That we would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as, here's the result, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That means that we can also walk in a manner that's not worthy of the Lord. When is that? When I'm walking of my own accord. I will never walk worthy of the Lord. I could be doing all the good doobie kind of things. I could be doing really great deeds. I could be acting Christianly and speaking Christianly. But if I'm walking of my own accord, it's still not worthy. My flesh will never please God. Anyone that comes to God must believe that he is, and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That's those who come to him by faith please him. So it's a walk by faith. So we're walking worthy. So he's saying, be filled with the knowledge of his will in wisdom and spiritual understanding so that we'll walk in a, worthy, a manny, wor manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That sounds really good. If we stopped right there, we would start to think, okay, well, I'm going to read God's word and I'm going I'm to see what it has to say and I, I better go do it. I better go do it. And, and we'd be reading well if it stopped right there. But it doesn't stop right there. Listen to what he says in verse 11. May you be, what? Strengthened with all power. So he uses the word strengthened. And then he uses with all power. And then he wants, you know, in case you haven't gotten it yet. In case that's not sufficient to understand that we can't walk in a worthy manner of God in a way that pleases Him and brings forth fruit of our own accord, in case we haven't gotten that it's a walk of grace yet, He brings a third word of power in the middle of verse 11. He says, according to His glorious might. According to His glorious might. For all endurance and patience with joy. And in case we might still not have gotten the message, in case we're really slow on the uptake, he says, when we're doing this, when we're renewing our minds with all spiritual understanding and, 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 and wisdom and, and walking worthy, fully pleasing God and, and being fruitful in every good work, when all of this is going on and we're strengthened by power and, and his glorious might and it demonstrates itself in an endurance and a patience with joy, Look at what he says in verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father. Why are we giving thanks to him? Because without him we can't do it. He's just, it's like layered in. He layers it in. And you know what? That's what the whole New Testament does for us. It keeps on layering it in. Which is why what I try to do with all my heart every Sunday is to layer it in. Friends, it's so easy for us to think, okay, good thing to do. Do it bad thing to do. Don't do it. And we just go about ourselves, and we can do that in the flesh. We can be really great Pharisees. Now, Jesus didn't have very kindly words for the Pharisees, did he? Which is why we have to constantly be renewed in the spirit of our minds with regard to what grace is. Grace is not God saying, hey, I forgive you. Everything's good. That's mercy. It's a different thing altogether. It's great, and it's there. It's wonderful. Mercy, God forgives us of our transgressions. Grace is something different. Grace is God giving us something. Whether it be eternal life and God's righteousness, it's a wonderful gift. Or whether it be the practical everyday illustration of it is God empowering us to do his will. God saying, yes, here's what a Christian life looks like. Let me do it in you. That, that's what grace is. So we need this constant reminder because it's layered throughout the pages of Scripture, particularly demonstrated clearly in our New Testament. So, heading back to Ephesians chapter 3, know this, it is the Spirit of God, it is the Spirit of God, who brings forth the grace of God into our lives. It is through this grace, which we define as divine power, that we move from insignificance to eternal significance. What is Paul praying for? First of all, we need divine power in our inner man. Secondly, here's what he prays for. We need Christ 
to reside in our midst. We need Christ to reside in our midst. Now, if you're not going to put the scriptures together, you're going to be kind of confused here because you say, well, here's something I know. I know at the moment of salvation, God, in the form of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, dwells within the believer. I know this. In fact, Paul has already told us that in the book of Ephesians. And he tells us in various ways throughout the book that the Godhead, the triune Godhead, dwells within us. But here's what we need to know as we read this next section. As the Spirit of God strengthens us, listen carefully, as the Spirit of God strengthens us, the Son of God resides in us and among us in his fullness. He resides in us and among us in his fullness. Listen to what he says in verse 7. So that Christ, verse 17, sorry. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, little side note here. I just wanted to point out the fact that this is a Trinitarian prayer. Trinitarian. He's praying to the Father about the Spirit strengthening us so that the Son would dwell in us. Trinitarian. He does not unabashed in his Trinitarian philosophy and theology. Now this church, the Ephesians, has already been told that the Spirit took up residence in them in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. He says, when you believe the gospel, the Spirit came into you and he seals you for the day of redemption. He is the earnest, the down payment for the, the day of your final redemption. Uh, um, redemption. So, so he's, they've already been told that Jesus, that the Spirit dwells in them. So that, that's very clear. As you get to the end of chapter 1 and going into chapter 2, God, through Paul's prayer, is demonstrating that, that Paul says, I want you, God, to teach them what your power that is at work in their lives looks like. And so he starts to talk about Jesus being raised from the dead and ascending into heaven and being seated at the right hand of God. He does that in chapter 1. But he says, I want them to know your power that is for us. I want us to understand your power and how it impacts us. And he talks about Jesus' resurrection and his ascension and his, seed, his session, it's called, at the right hand of God the Father. In chapter 2, however, he makes this statement in verse 5. Listen carefully to what he says. Chapter 2 and verse 5. Even when we were, past tense, dead in our trespasses... God made us alive together, what does it say? With Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What he's just done is he says, okay, in chapter 1, the Spirit comes in and dwells in you and seals you for the day of redemption. Chapter 2, you are are placed into Christ, and so where Jesus is, you are. Jesus was in a grave, so were you. Jesus was raised from that grave, so were you. Jesus ascended up into glory, so were you. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father, so are you. You're in him. He's already told us that we're in Christ. He's not reiterating that. He's talking about something different. He's already told us that the Spirit dwells in us. He's already told us that we're in Christ and that we have this union with him. And it's beautiful and it's necessary. He's talking about something different. At the end of chapter 1, however, he does start to give us a little teeny little taste of what he talks about here in chapter 3. Look at the end of chapter 2, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 22. He has put all things under his feet and he gave him, Jesus, as head over all things to the church, the church which is his body, and here's the other part of it, the church which is the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now it's very, it's very the, 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 the verbiage, the Greek verbiage in, at, in that verse is so very complicated. So there are, there's this kind of different ways you can read it, but let's just kind of get the idea. When the church is rightly related to Christ and rightly surrendered to Christ, we are a manifestation of his fullness. So listen to what he's saying back in chapter 3. It, it's, it's so incredible. 
He says in verse 16 that according to the riches of his glory, out of the abundance of who he is, he may grant, give this gift of grace, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. What he's saying is when we are uh, yielded to the spirit of God, Jesus, the term is katoikeo, kata means down, Oikeo means to dwell. Jesus, the Christ, dwells down in us. The concept is to dwell or reside. Possibly you might even say he might reside comfortably. Comfortably. What does that mean? Well, he's, he's, he can't get out of his own skin. He's, he's very uncomfortable. No. The concept is when the spirit is controlling us, that is the environment in which Jesus is displayed. Listen, guys, ladies and gentlemen, isn't that what we want? Uh, when we come together, we're not coming here just so we can go through this ritual of singing some songs and putting some money in a plate and looking at a passage so we can feel better about ourselves. That is not it. If that's it, just pack it in and go home. Just quit now. That's, that's not it. It's what many churches have resorted to, and they're dead as a doornail. Folks, what we need is to be so united with the Spirit that when people come in here, they can practically hear Christ's voice. They can practically feel Christ's love. They experience Jesus' mercy. And they, they taste and long for Jesus' grace. This is what we do when we come together. United together for the purpose of the proclamation of the gospel and the meditation on who, how great God is. It is not about us. It is not about some guy standing here. It is about us joining together, surrendered to the Spirit, demonstrating Jesus, that the world might know him, that we might display him. That's why we're here. Talk about significance. Friends, I, I, don't, I don't mean to, to put you off at all here, but it's the only thing of significance that we've got. You know, I, I care about providing and I, my job and I care about taking care of the things that God has blessed me with. I want to make sure that my cars are running properly and my, my house is properly ordered and I want to feed my children. All those things. It's good. It's good. Someday there's no more food to feed them because I'll be dead. There's no more oil changes. The thing is rusted in a junkyard somewhere. There's no more paint to be put on. It's gone got one thing that lasts forever it's Christ the gospel of Christ we have nothing but significance about why we gather together because when we gather together in the spirit Jesus is on display and that is the stewardship of God's grace that Paul was entrusted with back in verse 2 this is why he goes to the father and says father the one who is the source of everyone. Father, the one out of, out of the abundance of your glory, please grant us to have the strength that comes from the Spirit so that Jesus will dwell among us and reside. We need it. We have nothing else but that. That's what, I believe that's what he's telling us in verse 17. He's another need here. i got to finish up so that we don't go to forever. We need God's love to strengthen our conception of God's love. That's a tricky one, huh? <laughs> because it's very tricky in here. We need God's love to strengthen our conception of God's love. Listen to how it reads. The end of verse 17. That you, being rooted and grounded in love. He doesn't say, hey, go be rooted and grounded in love. That you... Since you are rooted and since you are grounded in love, that you may have strength, there's more grace, to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. Now, I could really, I could love to dive into some things here, but know this in order to have the strength to comprehend, we must have first been rooted and grounded, which has already taken place. We've been rooted and grounded in love. Where did that love come from? Class. 
God. How did that take place? He poured out his spirit within us. So God's love has been poured out into our soul by the spirit who has been given to us. He uses two terms. He uses the term rooted. It's an agricultural term. It's to go down deep. It's, it's, it's already taken place. We're, we're, we're already firmly rooted. And then he uses an architectural term, grounded. It has the idea of a foundation. It's been laid in place. Who's, who's been laid in place as the chief cornerstone? Anyone? Yeah. I'm glad that I'm, I'm in that foundation with him. I've been grounded there. As we are rooted and established in this love that comes from God, we have the capacity to see the evidence of God's redeeming love. I want you to think about that. As we are rooted and established in this love that comes from God, we have the capacity to see the evidence of God's redeeming love. It is a breathtaking kind of love. It is a pass-the-marks kind of love. And he prays that we would have a fullness of our understanding of this. Now listen, as you look at yourself and say, wow, God loved me, you're already starting to get a little, little glimpse of this. And then you look at your, your spouse and you say, wow, God loved you. <laughs> and you've got little children. Wow, God loved you. <laughs> and, and you look at your, your aunts and uncles. God loved you and your fellow Christian. God loved you. God, God loves that guy and, and that lady and that person. He loves this one and that one. What kind of a love is that? That's, a, that's breathtaking. Listen to what he says. He says, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. Listen, listen to what R. Kent Hughes says about it. He really does a marvelous job of describing this, and he kind of quotes from different people along the way, including God himself. This kind of love that he's talking about, that Paul is talking about, is, is a love which is wide enough to embrace the world. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life or eternal life. This, this love is a love which is long enough to last forever. 1 Corinthians 13, 8 says, love never fails. It doesn't end. As Spurgeon said, it is so long that your old age cannot wear it out. It is so long that your conditional tri or continual tribulation cannot exhaust it. That your successive temptations cannot drain it dry. Like eternity itself, it knows no bounds. I'm going to think about that love that doesn't ever stop. Doesn't ever stop. Listen, sometimes we feel like it stopped when we're in the midst of our own grief. And we're frustrated with ourselves or someone else. We feel like it stopped. And God says it just keeps going. I've loved you with an everlasting love. It's a love which is high enough to take sinners to heaven. It's a love that is deep enough to take Christ to the very depths to reach the lowest sinner. Do you agree? Do you agree that Christ's love surpasses knowledge? That's what he says in verse 19. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. John Phillips wrote, and oh man, it's good. When will God stop loving us? If we are disobedient, fall into sin and bring shame and dishonor to the name of his son, will he stop loving us then? What if we keep on sinning? What if we exceed the 70 times seven times? God will never stop loving us. The length of God's love stretches back beyond our farthest thought, thought and forward on and on forever. This is what he's telling us. God's love has no bounds. You believe that? Have you tasted that the Lord is gracious. If you tasted his love, there's nothing like it, friends. And Paul is saying it is so hard even for a Christian to really get it all. So he says, God, we are unable to do this. Please, please help us to understand the, 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 the breadth and width and height and depth of your love. Help us to know it and the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. For what? To what end? He's not done. He says, we have one more need. We need God's fullness to fill us. At the end of verse 19, that you may be filled. What does it say? That we may be filled, what? With all the fullness of God. Well, we're just looking for little things. We're just asking for little things. Oh, God, oh, help me. I don't feel well. I've got a headache, and it's every day. 
That's, I know it feels big. That's little compared to what we're talking about. Uh, God, I have this financial need. It's little. It's little compared to what we're talking about. Uh, God, I, I just need this job. I need this elevation. I need this thing. It's little. He says, I want to do something in you that you could never do if you lived a thousand lifetimes. Be filled with all the fullness of God. Only God can grant such a request. And it's not so far-fetched. It's not so far-fetched at all. When we're filled with the Spirit, we're filled with Christ. When we're filled with Christ, we are filled with all the fullness of God. Listen carefully. Listen carefully to Colossians 2, verses 9 and 10. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. He says, listen, Jesus is it. He's everything. He's got all the deity, the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form, and he fills you. Is that enough for you? Is that enough for you? I hope so. I hope that's enough for you. To whom is this prayer uttered? Verse 20. Now to him who was able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. Will it come to pass? Will this prayer come to pass? Who's it based on? Us? No! It's based on Almighty God Himself. It'll come to pass. What will be the result? Verse 21. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I have a question for you. You probably can predict it. Is the church insignificant? People treat it as such. People act as though it is. Friends, God's word says no. I have a follow-up question to that. Are you insignificant? Are you insignificant? The answer is equally no. I want to challenge you to meditate upon this rich doctrine as you journey through this coming week. When you're tempted to think of your little importance, remember that God has connected you to his body, the church. God has connected you to that which will not fail. The gates of hell will not prevail against God's church. Here we are, just a small manifestation of God's universal church. God is with us in his fullness. It's glorious, friends. Don't take this union, this, this, this opportunity we have regularly to get together. It is not for nothing. It is far more significant than we have ever in this life have concept of. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your spirit, for your word, for your people. Help us that we would display Jesus, that the world might know that we are your disciples, that angels might know your manifold wisdom, that each one of us would comprehend with all the saints, with all the saints, your amazing, boundless, limitless, unending love. In Jesus' name. Amen.